shaking and I can't take no more. Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we will be looking at issue number 502, July the 9th, 1994, £1.40 pence. This week I have been mostly listening to Kiss. Kiss were last week's cover stars and I've always been a Actually, a few years ago, I'd say I was a passing fan of Kiss until I actually sat down and started listening to their records. And then I realised how actually brilliant they were. So I've been listening to a lot of Kiss past week. I even got a workmate listening to Kiss who's always liked a bit of rock but never checked them out. She was a bit concerned about the song Christine 16, obviously. We we should all be a bit concerned about that song. And the song Lick It Up, for obvious reasons. (laughs) Also, some very dodgy connotations, but that's Kiss for you. Overtly sexual, but but fun with it. Except with sixteen-year-olds, that's not so great. God, it's it's a quagmire, isn't it? Isn't it just so difficult going back and looking at these bands and trying to look at them through the lens of twenty twenty-one and not just having huge problems with everything that everyone's ever done because they're all just wrongins. And speaking of sexy bands, this week's cover stars are White Snake. I want to stir up some shit. White Snake, Coverdale Snakes Bite Back. Bon Jovi, exclusive, 30 songs for the next LP. The Seattle Drug Nightmare. Plus, Black Sabbath, Napalm Death, Judas Priest, Blind Melon, Kiss, and L7. Slash, Guns N' Roses Man Rocks London. Plus, Killer Posters, Raging Album Exclusives, and Thrashing 8-page pullout for both Megadeth and Slayer. And for those who are asking about my cough, which was none of you, you'll be pleased to know that it has cleared up and I've gone from my raspy self back to my old slightly squeaky self. Am I slightly squeaky? Do you know what? It's funny. Ever since doing this podcast, I've actually been listening. I have to listen back to the podcast to hear, obviously, to to, to hear it, to make sure that it sounds okay, that it's not, you know, just I've, I've, I've done some like something wrong with the production. So there's something incredibly... Uh, vain and egotistical about walking around the streets with my headphones on listening to myself talking to myself and I don't hate my voice like I thought I was going to I mean this is the 27th episode of this podcast so if I can't stand my own voice now then I'm obviously never going to but it is strange being used to the sound of your own voice It, it really is what's my point no point let's get on with the podcast Starting this week with Mayhem, the hottest news in metal first. And John Bon Jovi and the boys rock out with a greatest hits package and new studio album. Bon Jovi are set to proceed their sixth studio LP with a scorching greatest hits album in October. Two new songs will feature on the best of record as well as an all-star selection called from the New Jersey Superstars' colourful back catalogue. The long-awaited follow-up to Keep the Faith will follow, according to frontman John Bon Jovi, by March at the latest. I haven't really heard any of those old albums of ours in a long time, John tells Mayhem. It's taken me a while to pull something from every one. Some of them I like more than others. Runaway, the band's first ever single from way back in 1984, looks a safe bet to make it onto the greatest hit record. Does this mean that the band can finally remake the accompanying uh, video and delete the old one? Surely one of the naffest ever made. Yeah, ain't that the truth, John laughs. We're still not very good at making videos, but fuck, wouldn't that be a blessing to burn the video of Runaway? I did see a bit of that piece of shit video recently, and it nearly killed me. Stop Press and Pantera have quashed rumours that they are lining up a one-off headline show at London's Brixton Academy. The Texan heavyweights, currently on the road in America with Sepultura and Biohazard, are expected to announce a full UK tour in September. Around the time, Labelmates Helmet are rumoured to be making a return to these shores. Dream Theatre are slated to release their new album through East West in October. The new material is said to be surprisingly heavy. Rollins Band are slated to release a single on the eve of their Reading Festival appearance. The track has still to be confirmed. Freak of Nature have started work on their second album, which is due this year through Music for Nations. And Europe frontman Joey Tempest is understood to have inked a solo deal with the Polygram organisation. More news soon. Record releases and Megadeth, Sepultura and Ugly Kid Joe are all set to feature on a phenomenal Black Sabbath tribute album due out this autumn. Slated for a September release through Columbia, the LP entitled Nativity in Black 
We'll also feature Sabbath covers by Biohazard, White Zombie, Corrosion of Conformity, Typer Negative and a thousand homo DJs, as well as unique contributions from Bruce Dickinson with New Jersey Sludgers Godspeed and Therapy with Ozzy Osbourne. The Therapy Ozzy track, as has previously been announced in Kerrang, will be a rip-roaring cover of Iron Man. Ozzy told Mayhem this week, Columbia asked me if I wanted to be involved with the album. It was them that chose Iron Man and I'm very happy with the end result. Tony Iommi would probably think it sucks. I got on great with Therapy, they're a good bunch of guys and I'm honoured by the idea of a Sabbath tribute album. Fudge Tunnel, the fearsome cult British noise trio have finished recording their third full studio album. The three-piece, Alex Newport, guitar vocals, Dave Riley bass and Adrian Parkin drums, entered the isolated sawmill studio in Cornwall at the beginning of May and laid down 11 tracks, all of which have been previewed exclusively to Mayhem. The new LP sees a definite move away from last year's relatively unsuccessful Creek Diets LP, stomping back towards the rounded, bass-heavy, choppy, guitar-loaded sound of 1991's influential minor classic, Hate Songs in E Minor. The album slated for release via Earache in September is titled The Complicated Futility of Ignorance. Soundgarden released a new single through A&M on August the 8th, entitled Black Hole Sun, it is the third to be lifted from the band's acclaimed fourth album, Super Unknown, and all formats will be backed with exclusive live tracks recorded during the band's US tour with Neil Young last summer. The Rolling Stones released their first album in five years on July 12th. Entitled Voodoo Lounge, it is the rock legend's first for Virgin Records since they signed a worldwide deal in November 1991. Urban Dance Squad the Dutch techno metal outfit have released their debut single for Hut. Entitled Demagogue, it is available on 12 inch and CD, each adding three extra tracks. Creaming Jesus release a new single through Jungle on July 25th. Entitled Hamburg, it will be followed on September 5th with a new album, Chaos for the Converted. Peaceville Records, the home of Autopsy, My Dying Bride, Anathema and Pentagram, among others, have signed a seven-figure partnership deal with Music for Nations. With the fact from this autumn, the contract will see MFM taking on the business responsibilities, manufacture, distribution and promotion of all Peaceville's interests until the year 2000. The Scorpions have gone football crazy and signed a deal with major computer and video games publisher US Gold. The Teutonic hard rock giants, whose song No Pain No Gain is the official anthem for the German Soccer League, have furthered their soccer links by penning music to be featured in US Gold's official World Cup 94 video game. Bad Religion are currently hard at work on their new album, which is tentatively titled Stranger Than Fiction. The album is being produced by Andy Wallace, who produced Sepultura's groundbreaking Chaos AD album and will be available through Sony in late August. Tour news and Woodstock 2 is on for August. Metallica, Aerosmith, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nine Inch Nails, Rollins Band, Alice in Chains and Porno for Pyros are all set to play at the Mega Metal Woodstock 2 Festival taking place in New York next month. Guns N' Roses, who were one of the early contenders for a premier position on the bill, will now not be taking part. The event, which marks the 25th anniversary of the original Woodstock Festival, will be interspersed with performances from major names in other fields of music, including Spin Doctors, Arrested Development, Santana and Peter Gabriel. They are among the non-metal attractions at the All-Star Concert, which takes place in Sugatees, upstate New York, on the weekend of August 13th, 14th. Girls Against Boys have confirmed a one-off warm-up day in preparation for their Phoenix Festival appearance. The US Sophistos, Sophistos, is that a word? Play London New Cross Venue July 15th. Support comes from Dunn Lying Down. And, finally this week, for tour news, a new under-18s metal night has started on Tuesdays at Eastbourne Sub-72 Club. Coast to Coast, the hottest US news as it happens. This week we're with Don K in New York. 
The sad case of white zombie drummer Phil Burstatt continues. Just days after being allowed back into the band on a probationary basis, Phil was once again asked to leave. There's plenty of rumours circulating about why Phil's having so hard a time of making a go of it, but the one fact is that at least for the time being, White Zombie continue their quest for a new Stixman, though Testament's John Tempesta is rumoured to have landed the job. As for Phil, we can only hope he sort things out before it's too late. Soundgarden pulled into town for two sold-out nights at the New York State Armory, an actual storehouse for military vehicles and weaponry on Lexington Avenue and 25th Street in Manhattan. The cavernous building has rarely hosted rock events, but it easily held 6,000 people each night. However, there was one fatal flaw, no air conditioning. Without a doubt, this placed both gigs in a barely endurable environment, with ambulances on call as people passed out from the overwhelming heat. Only two brilliant performances from Soundgarden made the situation bearable as the band aired most of Super Unknown, a healthy portion of Bad Motorfinger and one or two older gems. Artist The Spoon Man played a brief set on the first night before the headliners who were also supported by Tad and Eleven. Charlie Bernate of Anthrax and Johnny Ramone were in attendance the first night while it was rumoured that Jason Newstead, Kurt Hammett and James Hetfield of Metallica were also sighted in the building. While Soundgarden grapple with the task of uh, having to play bigger and bigger places, Motley Crue are going in the opposite direction. Their scheduled New York uh, date was moved from Nassau Coliseum, 15,000 capacity, to Roseland Ballroom, 3,000 capacity. And I don't think there's been any snow on the roof of the Coliseum to endanger people's safety. Their opening act, uh, Type of Negative, are starting to break out now and could possibly headline the Roseland on their own. Since they're from New York City, anyway, perhaps the bill should be reversed. Also notable was the seven-year bitch show at CBGB's attended by numerous representatives of Atlantic Records with whom the punk outfit are rumoured to be signing. Opening for the bitches were Loudspeaker, a Lower East Side outfit with a new album that falls squarely in the tradition of that area's confrontational bands like Helmet, Prong and Surgery. Corrosion of Conformity drummer Reed Mullen hinted that he might show at Seven Year Bitches show but his band were locked away at the legendary Electric Ladyland Studios on 8th Street, presumably completing recording their debut outing for their new label. Meanwhile, Corrosion of Conformity's North Carolina neighbours Buzz Oven played a ferocious set at the limelight along with Avon Punk outfit Season to Risk, fearsome headliners Neurosis cancelled. Rumour has it because one of the band members had broken his arm in a particularly aggressive skateboarding session and the whole gig was held in the limelight's upstairs VIP room since the main hall was occupied by a gay dance. But look out for the debut Buzz Oven record on Roadrunner Records. It's due this August. I've also got word of another KISS one-off date. It's on July 30th in Nashville with Brother Kane, Pat Travers and get this, Fleetwood Mac. Who knows, maybe they'll all be appearing on the next KISS tribute album. Beavis, you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! We now come to concerts, and the first concert review this week is the Night of 100 Guitars. This occurred at Wembley Arena, London, on Sunday, June 26th. The review is by Steve Beebe, and the concert gets static out of five, three out of five. Watching the pre-match team selection for this particular fixture has been rather depressing. What would have been a carnival of megastars gathered together to throw aside their musical differences and celebrate the 100th birthday of the Gibson guitar turned out to be more of a polite and pleasant village fate. Initially, no less an act than Led Bloody Zeppelin were being mooted as potential headliners before even their replacements, the soft-pawned Zepp Wiffery of modern Whitesnake, also turned their noses up. The event was then hit by the non-appearance of Jimmy Page, Aerosmith's Joe Perry and Dan Reed, all of which left Paul Rogers in the unenviable and frankly undeserved role of headliner. That free and bad company were great, influential bands is not in question. It's just a pity that their respected frontman has had to live on past glories ever since. And besides, with Gibson's two greatest expo exponents, Page and Perry absent, the feeling is very much that of a wedding party without the bride and groom. The real first band of the night is Skim. The band's classy blues-based rock and Nev McDonald's scorching roars do a fine job in getting people out of their seats. Money and Look But Don't Touch blast past and a few more numbers would not have gone amiss. The scary thing about Skim is that they've been in the public eye for less than a year and already look perfectly at ease in an arena setting. The future of British rock is indeed in safe hands. In contrast, Terrorvision are scared shitless and suffer accordingly. Middleman is an inauspicious start, Tony Wright mumbles nervously and the whole band seemed to wish they were somewhere else. 
An unkind sound takes nothing away from Thunder, who receive a rapturous reception. River of Pain, a new song, turns out to be a splendid, immediate, melodic number which will inevitably become a Thunder fave. Every time you see the band they look more professional and Dirty Love is the same old stomp along it has always been. The Danny Bowles dances like a five year old on a bouncy castle is not important. Everyone loves Thunder. Following this, Warren Cuckarulo performs a nervous sapper tribute. Cuckarulo is an exceptional talent better off within the context of his own band, Duran Duran. At times like this, that you thank God Ungui isn't dead. Aussie star Jimmy Barnes again proves that he has the most powerful voice in rock. Stone Cold is Barnes at his very best. Forget those fruitless calls for Barnes to join Deep Purple, he's far too good for that. Countrified picker Albert Lee and Dave Edmonds signal a mass exodus to the toilets and burger stalls. Godlike DJ Alan Freeman, who introduces all the bands tonight, fantastically calls them living legends. Freeman himself is far worthier of that accolade. The Live Aid-tastic scenario that is the Wembley stage with its multiple drum risers and massive Gibson backdrop appears to dwarf Zack Wilde's pride and glory. Zack is a heavy metal guitarist for all the right reasons, head thrown back, legs wide apart, guitar screaming in protest. There's absolutely no one who does this better right now. An explosive cheer predictably greets Slash, who joins Wilde for an absolutely breathtaking voodoo chili. Poison's Brett Michaels is another big star who has graced us with his presence, particularly impressive when you consider that the man is supposed to be lying half dead in hospital after his recent car crash. If some of my teeth fall out, just hand them back to me, Jess Michaels, before three careful Poison numbers. It would have been especially satisfying to see Slash get up for a jam, if only to prove that Guns N' Roses and Poison have finally forgotten their celebrated bitterness, but it wasn't to be. Instead, that tired old smoothie Robert Palmer comes on, might as well face it, you're addicted to a nice cup of cocoa and a good sit down by the fire in your favourite armchair. While all other artists are limited to just two or three numbers, Paul Rogers gets to rattle on for over an hour. This is utterly incomprehensible. Admittedly, Rogers is joined at irregular intervals by such names as Brian May Slash and Bon Jovi bassist Alec John Such. Sadly, it's too late in the evening for tedious blues jams. Rogers' vocal prowess is somewhat diminished in recent years, but his is still a resilient performance. Highlights of this overlong set include Messrs Slash and Such firing up Bad Company, while Brian May spectacularly misfiring the intro to All Right Now will long be remembered. Sadly, my main memory of the Night of 100 Guitars will be hearing the rumour that both Robert Plant and Jimmy Page were backstage, backstage doing nothing. No sense of occasion, some people. The next review is for Brutal Truth and Macabre, live at the Rosetta Belfast, Tuesday, June 21st. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this gets high voltage out of 5, 4 out of 5. It's surely no coincidence that it's as hot as hell in here tonight. When Macabre hit the stage, things start getting very sick indeed. The trio are either taking death metal to its logical conclusion, or else they're viciously ripping the piss out of the genre. It's almost impossible to decide. Each and every song is prefaced with a twisted vignette detailing the horrific misdoings of specific serial killers and the crowd lap it up. Although the vocalist's facial contortions and psychotic crime watch killer tone suggest that he's a nice guy really. Mac Massacre and Serial Killer dismember with hyper fast double bass drum rolls, grinding guitar and suitably toe curling vocals. You know the score by now. The irresistible Mr. Albert Fish consumes his favourite dish complete with sing-along choruses, it's doubtless destined to be a karaoke classic at death metal seminars for years to come. There is nothing remotely funny about Brutal Truth. This is pure oral meltdown. Tonight, the New York four-piece are completely savage, pounding out huge merciless slabs of the most punishing hate court around. To lump these sonic terrorists in with the death metal scene does them a great disservice. Sure, they can grind and grimace with the best of them, but theirs is a more focused brutality. Although they haven't dispensed with the two second blur chord numbers, vocalist Kevin Sharp and Co are at their best when they give their noxious blast beats room to breathe. The primal intensity shifting tectonic plates. Lurching through the white noise, Danny uh, Liker's bass tone is lower than a snake scrotum. It hurts. New tune, choice of a new generation, may be dedicated to the legalization of dope, but it carries no woozy chill out vibe. Guitar and drums slicing viciously through the moist air. Expect continued blunt rage on the forthcoming album. Brutal Truth overcome their myriad technical problems tonight with sheer naked aggression. When the gig climaxes in arcs of screeching whirring feedback, it's like a lullaby compared to what has gone before. There are no encores. 
Rock and roll conventions are so weak. Undiluted hate has rarely felt so good. The Offspring, live at the Whiskey A Go-Go, Los Angeles, Friday, May 27th. Reviewed by Max Hackett, this gets high voltage out of 5, 4 out of 5. What happens when an alternative band whose very identity depends on its underground status goes the MTV route? South Californian faves The Offspring managed to turn the Whiskey A Go-Go into a veritable punk fest of a truly classic nature. Packed to the rafters with sweaty kids, slamming and singing at the top of their lungs, not bad for a Thursday night in an increasingly jaded LA rock scene. This was The Offspring's first show since the release of their album Smash, which has been drawing a good deal of attention with the single Come Out and Play, an unbelievably catchy punk pop ditty that just may follow the path forged by fellow punksters Green Day with their monster hit Longview. Singer Dexter took every opportunity to downplay The Offspring's potential move into the mainstream deadpanning. I hope you're not here just to hear the hit single and the moshers in the front row. In fact, the audience seems split almost evenly between recent converts and cautious older fans worried about losing their band. With the new material out of the way, the band seemed more at ease settling into a fast and furious groove of anthems in the vein of bad religion. Not the most original stuff, but brutally effective in sending the fans home smiling, singing and limping. What more can you ask at a prime punk rock show? If the offspring don't want to be rock stars, they could forego that radio and MTV airplay, but you can bet they won't be playing a place as small as the whiskey again. The next review is for Beastie Boys, live at the Tivoli Dublin on Saturday, June the 11th. This review is by Paul Brannigan, and this gets electrocution out of five, five out of five. Anyone who thinks that rock rap groups can't cut it live should check out the Beastie Boys, pronto. No longer the bratty frat rappers who produced a classic license to ill, the B-Boys now sound like the cheeky offspring of Minor Threat and Funkadelic. Unpredictable, attitudinous and totally cool. It's difficult to recall seeing an audience so psyched up, so completely into the booty-shaking seismic rumbles coming from the stage. MCA, Ad-Rock and Mike D lead us into their pimp-mongous world and blow minds with their scattershot musical diversity and manically energetic groovophones. Whether skanking, funkin' or punkin', the b-boys deliver frills aplenty. Don't let anyone tell you that these guys can't play. When they strap on guitars to blister through Tough Guy or slide into the sublime Ricky's theme, they're more than a match for any real band. Root Down is the dayglow party of your dreams. Sure Shot is devastatingly scuzzy disco jam dissecting the US slacker mindset. The utterly infectious cop-sucking collision of sabotage jostles for dance floor nirvana alongside old shit such as Egg Raid or Mojo and trash culture collages from the underrated Paul's Boutique and 92's Check Your Head album. The grins on the faces of Dublin shiny happy people say it all. Gig of the year and then some. The next review is for Napalm Death and Entombed live at the Hop and Grape, Manchester, Tuesday, June 28th. Reviewed by Paul Travers. This gets static out of five, three out of five. I'll be the first to admit that I no longer care a great deal about the death metal scene in 1994. So sue me. Back in May, our own Morat filed the first report on this tour package from a sweat-soaked marquee. So how has the two-pronged attack developed in its two months on the road in mainland Europe? What would Manchester make of the mighty double-headed monster? There's a tense air of expectancy in this very packed flea pit of a venue, and it's extremely obvious that Entombed are the main draw tonight. As soon as they skulk out onto the stage, there's a mass exodus of bodies heaving towards the front. When they erupt into out of hand, the entire audience erupts with them. I'm immediately sentenced to 20 lashes from the bloke standing behind me and his windmilling head. The noise that Entombed creates certainly merits this frenzied reaction. It's an awesomely powerful wall of sound that hits with an almost physical force. The twin guitars are concrete thick, while Lars Goran Petrov, clad in a fetching I Eat Christians t-shirt, seems to dredge his guttural vocals from the very seat of his bowels. Scary stuff. But the Entombed story doesn't end with just gut-wrenching heaviness. There are also songs and there's a sense of structure. It's not just a thoughtless grind. There are in fact strong melodies, both blatant and subtle, running through the bulk of the set, and it's these extra touches, as well as the immense discharge-like sense of aggression that sets Entombed apart. As for Napalm Death, they're always stood apart anyway. There's no mistaking that primal roar, but following Entombed's breathtaking performance, its relevance has to be questioned. The point of Napalm Death was never how well they played their instruments or whether or not they were talentless noise nicks. That never really came into it. What mattered was that they were the most extreme form of musical expression around. Extremity sells, but nowadays extremity is a fairly commonplace commodity. 
When Napalm Death get outworlded by their support band, they lose most of their power and purpose. So we still have the caustic soda vocals and Shane Embry's pounding bass. There are still the same insane blurs of speed, but they actually dilute the band's power rather than add to it. Back in 1986, these same ingredients inspired either awe and adulation or ridicule and derision. Reaction to the band tended to swing between the two poles, but at least there was always was a reaction. Tonight, there are people with arms folded and a few with indifferent looks on their faces. The hardcore following down the front is still going mad, but elsewhere the response is subdued. All credit to Napalm Death for bringing out such a powerful support band, but you can't help feeling that the gesture might have backfired on them. Hollywood Hags Lordy, it's L7, those hard-drinking, hard-rocking TV addicts who somehow wound up schmoozing with Mick Jagger and Kathleen Turner. On a drunken night in the Hollywood Hills, the girls tell Liz Evans all about their big-screen debut, their kooky new album Hungry for Stink, and the day they were beaten up by eight-year-old Scouse Scallies. The history... L7 storm LA's underground music scene during the late 80s, listen to dumbasses asking what it's like being a girl in a band, sign a short-term deal with Sub Pop, then a long-term deal with Slash London, release a killer album in Bricks Are Heavy, and tour the world with Nirvana, Faith No More, and Pearl Jam. The setting? An exquisite Japanese restaurant in the Hollywood Hills. The time? Panic period. The last stages of major label album number two. The characters? Four infamous rock hags, newly unrecognisable to the world thanks to bad hair dye. The question, can the world cope? Could the world ever cope with L7? Sipping stiff Mai Tai cocktails, spiked cappuccinos and indecent amount of sake in the most genteel of eating houses. Donita Sparks, black knots. Dee Placas, green and murky bleach knots. Jennifer Finch, grain purplish hacked off knots. And Susie Gardner, same tarnished blonde knot knots, have been through... Two years of touring, recording, being famous and watching endless reruns of impossibly brain-damaging daytime TV talk shows and they're still swapping tales of knicker infections. Such a relief. So why the album Deadline Panic? Well, writer's block and the lure of the living room played their part. We allowed for a little too much relaxation time, confesses vocalist guitarist Danita. The only time that we left our TVs was to come to rehearsal, adds bassist Jennifer. And then we'd sit there and talk about what we'd seen. Then we started writing, the record and everything fell into place, shrugs drummer D. And of course we work best under pressure and panic. Not that TV was the only distraction, incredibly L7 have taken the first step on the ladder to Hollywood starlet status. Yeah, the girls have hit celluloid in a way only they could. We're in a movie called Serial Mum and we play a band called Camel Lips, explains Danita. We wear these stretch pants and we had the costume yeah, get us these control top pantyhose because we were a little worried about our figures. We all got yeast infections, and by the end, our crutches were like Petri dishes. We had to wear these things for 18 hours a day for three days, so it was like a flora explosion, adds Susie, just in case you didn't get the picture. And just in case you were curious about their role in the film, it's more of a cameo than a starring part. In Jennifer's words, they provided the cherry on the cream. We're sort of at the crescendo of the movie, explains Donita. Serial mum is chasing the next victim into a rock club where camel lips are performing, and then the fun really begins. Starring Kathleen Turner, who presented the band with a set of engraved pink army knives, Serial Mum sounds like a fitting film debut for L7. Violent, tacky, and downright ridiculous. Winona had better watch her back. But back to Hungry for Stink. Maybe we'd better just settle the matter of the title first. Stink is whatever you conjure up in your imagination, suggests Danita somewhat worryingly. When I told my mother what it was going to be called, she said, Oh my, laughed Susie. From psychedelic surf to stonesy blues to scary detuned riffing, Hungry for Stink runs the gamut of rock and roll as L7 know it, and hell, even Mick Jagger has lent a helping hand. We were recording at A&M Studios in LA, Danita recalls. At first, Soundgarden were there, and that was cool. We know those guys from Sub Pop, and they're nice, but it was no big deal. But then the Rolling Stones came in, so we camped out by the couch in front of their studio, you know, just hanging out casually. First we got a glimpse of Keith Richards on his way back from the bathroom, zipping his pants up, and then Mick Jagger, who was very charming, started helping Susie sequence our album. I planted myself out there, all alone. It was incredible, beamed Susie. You weren't on your own for long, laughs Dee. And Jagger isn't the only star who helped out on the record. The delightful Roddy Bottom of Faith No More plays keyboards on the girl's first ever instrumental, Riding With A Movie Star. Lyrically, L7 are sticking with their usual mixture of impassioned sexual politics, bizarre humour and a little griping. 
Fuel My Fire slams a sleazy video director the girls once worked with, while Andres must be the finest example of a tribute cover apology ever committed to all formats. It's about the guy who owns the place we rehearse at, explains Dee. He's just been a saint to us in all sorts of horrible and weird situations. We even had a friend who got hold of my keys and ripped him off really badly, Danita groans. We just stood there afterwards going, we're so sorry. We'll pay you back. It was really ugly. But he always forgives us, and we actually had him singing on the record. The chorus goes, ah, Andre, I'm sorry. And he's very pleased about it, smiles D. I think after everything we put him through, the song's kind of made up for it. Another tribute song is dedicated to a 70s drag racing queen, while on a more serious note, Questioning My Sanity was written by Danita following a period of depression. I hit such a low, I was turning into Howard Hughes inside my house and inside my bed, she recalls. It lasted for too long, so I got some therapy and eased up on the drug intake. And that's all I really want to say about it right now. Can I run this the other really heavy lyric on Hungry for Stink, says Danita. It's basically about the fear of being raped and attacked, of being a victim. It's about how I felt walking my dog at night in LA. I had to make sure I had shoes, I could run in, and a whistle. L7 fans may remember Danita's dog as the little terrier mutt who starred in the Pretend We're Dead video. That song was also inspired by my friend who's a foot messenger in New York. She wears mirrored sunglasses and headphones when she walks down the street just so she can't hear comments or make eye contact with any of these guys who are obviously saying things to her. It's her urban camouflage. Worldwide, if you're a woman in a field or a street or anywhere at night and you hear footsteps behind you and you look around and it's a woman, you think I'm safe. But if it's a man, there's always the question, is this person a threat or are they just walking home too? In LA there used to be a feeling that if you were in your car and the doors were locked you were safe but that's changed now. Being on your guard against late night perverts is one thing, but fending off 8 year olds in Liverpool outside your own gig is quite another. It could only happen to L7. We were assaulted by little children in England, howls Jennifer. Scouse lads, they were about 8. We finally had to get really rough with them, we were beating up 6 year olds, they were intense. They were stealing toilet paper from our van, adds Danita. First one of them ripped a chain off Susie's jacket so we thought okay that's it. We picked him up and put him in a trash can. Then a Bobby walks by laughing as we're doing this, so the kids get mad because we embarrassed him in front of his line of fans waiting to get into our gig. Jennifer wound up having to pin him to the ground. They were kind of rude, but I was charmed, smiles D. I had this little necklace on which had a miniature flashlight on it, and one of the kids kept admiring it, so I thought I'd give it to him. That was a mistake, because then he wanted more. They wanted cigarettes, and they said they could get us any drugs we wanted, sighs Jennifer. One of them was talking like a little pimp. He said he could get us women. So L7 got beat up by two eight-year-olds last day. After the last of the Mai Tais are drained, L7 head back to the studio through the restaurant's gardens. We pass a swimming pool where Danita lost some earrings while skinny dipping a few nights earlier. LA's least likely residents gaze out over the shimmering city lights. This is why we live here, Danita murmurs. If living in LA can inspire four grown women to record an album titled Hungry for Stink, you know the water can't be so bad. Communication now, let's see why the long hairs of 1994 are myth this week. Letter of the week this week begins, After reading Kerrang 499, I would like to comment on Slayer's statements. I can't help but detect an ounce of arrogance among them. Has Kerry King's head swollen to make up for his recent loss of hair? I'm a big Slayer fan myself and Rain in Blood is killer but Slayer are not, despite what they say, the only band who do that stuff well. Why they have, in other interviews, had slide digs at Sepultura, I don't know. There is a link between the band's music, but in the same way Slayer could be linked to Priest and Sabbath, but Halford and Ozzy don't go slagging them. For fuck's sake, no one is 100% original. I must remind Slayer that when they first started, they jammed deep purple covers, like Chaos AD and Far Beyond Driven. I hope for us true heavy metal fans' sakes that Slayer's new album lives up to expectations, it had better. One disillusioned slayer nut from Cardiff. Your letter of the week prize should keep you going till then. Editor. The Great British Heavy Metal Awards. Okay, let's start again, shall we? Best New British Act, Terrorvision. Alright, so I admit I used to like them, but the pop rock gimmick wears a little thin after a while. Might I suggest Pitch Shifter or The Incredible Curb Dog? Their gig at the marquee earlier this year proved that Cormac and Co. dish out the best metal in Britain. Best International Live Act? Bon Jovi. Now I seem to remember somewhere it was the Heavy Metal Awards, not the Soft Cock Rock Pin-Up Chart Music Awards. This is an easy one. I mean, did anyone see Donington this year? Sepultura blow all competition out of the water. Best New International Act, Pantera. Now I'm not one to argue that Phil and the Boys are the greatest fucking act on the planet, but new? 
Phil joined in 88 and they had released 4 LPs before that. Give the new guys a chance. Stone Temple Pilots should have got it. Best British Act, Def Leppard. Now I wasn't that impressed with any of the nominees but why them? They're crap. This award should probably have gone to Curb Dog as well. So to all you long haired fuck witted pop rock fans who voted, get some taste, you sad trad wankers. Henry Rollins is Dental Floss from Barkingside. About your 500th issue, no mention of creator Celtic Frost and Voivod. How does Xavier Russell feel about this? Still, I suppose we are talking about the same magazine which forgot to put Metallica on its compilation CD, Neil Diamond, Luton. Please could you thank on my behalf Girls Against Boys for their awesome show at Wigan Pier on June 21st. The boys were friendly, unpretentious and the best evening out uh, you could possibly wish for. Cheers, Stu from Widnes. Gagging for a shagging? Surely I'm not the only person on earth to have an obscene desire to rip off Chuck Schrodinger's clothes and lick the sweat from his naked glistening body. Please print the most luscious picture of the deaf main man that you can find. I have also just noticed that my dearest Chuck looks incredibly like Eddie Vedder. Talk about a man with everything. The morbid angel from Strathclyde. Here's the luscious pouting Chuck in his full glory. Editor. It's been eight years, but Tom Scholes, thanks for an awesome experience. The new Boston album, what about some UK dates then? Starseed in need. Help. I desperately need a copy of Pantera's set from Donington on tape. My stereo chewed up my brother's copy and I need to replace it. If anyone has a copy they could send me, I will pay for the tape and the postage costs. Justine, 26 Granville Road, Tunbridge Wells, TN1, 2NX. Oh no. I've just read the horrible news from your hallowed pages. The locks of John Bush have been killed to feed the ever-changing chaos of fashion. Why must people defile themselves in this way? We loved you at Leeds in 93, but even though you've chosen to commit this heinous sin, we will still hold our heads up high and say, I am an Anthrax fan. Mossy from Wakefield. Helmet, curb dog, and understand that Rock City on June 20th was a killer. At £7.50, the ticket price was fantastic value, and for our money, we got three great bands. Understand, great to see a British rock band signed to a major label and have talent. A great future awaits. Curb Dog, never seen him before but definitely will again. Helmet, what more can I say? A night of sheer perfection and heaviosity. Rich from Newark. I'd just like to say that I'm totally behind Biohazard for what they did at Donington. I tried to get on the stage when the band told us to. The crowd were really good helping each other out to get over the barriers or if someone went down. It was a really good atmosphere. I got over the barrier, half crushed, only to be stopped by a big fat bastard of a security guard. I think Biohazard were right to smash up their dressing room. I only wish I was there to help. There was no danger and no point in pulling the plug in their set, it just worsened the situation. Not letting Biohazard complete what was the best set of the day. Rab Phoenix from Hearts. Save time and money on festivals by inviting some of your mates round to listen to records and get drunk in your own back garden. Every now and again to heighten the fun even more you can start a bottle fight with your neighbours. Spacey from Nantwich. P.S. Do I win 5 quid? No. Short on Curly's. Suggestion. Replace Axel Rose with Duff McKagan. Put Gilby Clark on bass and get Izzy Stradlin back. The best Guns N' Roses lineup yet. Charlie Colchester. Is there any truth in the rumour that Bruce Dickinson is related to Bill Oddie? Chivy Exeter. We now come to the 8 page monster pullout of Slayer and Megadeth, thrashing album exclusives plus power packed posters inside. Now quite recently in Kerrang they've done an album update of Megadeth, recording the album, um, what is it? I think they're recording Euthanasia at the moment, there's not really much more they say, it's a very small piece just about them in Phoenix recording the record. And with Slayer, they were the cover stars the other week and they were talking about recording Divine Intervention. They don't really say too much. There's there's a little bit of writing about them um, alongside the posters, not too much. But they do have some pretty hardline opinions on a number of social issues. I just want to read something quite quickly. Says Hanneman, Another thing that annoyed me was this whole Kurt Cobain business. I didn't meet the guy, I certainly didn't know him, but why make a martyr out of somebody who shot themselves? The media, who mostly don't know the guy at all, either made him into a hero. I mean, I ain't gonna piss on him, because I didn't know him. But what were the media doing? Trying to make out he was Jesus Christ or something. He put a gun to his head, and there's a lot of people who do that. King. The thing the media did was make a hero out of someone who shot themselves. So in a sense, they're saying that if you shoot yourself, you too can be a hero. Surely the point was that it was really sad to see such a gifted person blow his head off as an end to his unhappiness. America's gun laws are out of control. The Hanneman and King think guns should be legal. Yes, the guitarist replies one. 
but should a gun users at least be trained before they're given a license? Oh no, asserts Hanneman. Look at the facts. They're taking guns away from people who don't kill people. People who already know what it is to own a gun, how to use it and how not to use it. King. They're taking guns from honest citizens and they think it's going to solve the problem. But the problem lies beyond that. Marijuana's illegal. But do you see people having a problem getting that? The people who kill most with guns get them on the black market regardless of whatever laws passed. You'll never stop black market trading. But a lot of shootings are currently committed by teenagers who get hold of guns and don't know what the hell they're doing. Well, Hanneman continues, this is a situation where parents have to be involved and have to make sure that kids understand and respect what a gun is. Understand this. The problem isn't the gun, it's the person with the gun. I have two guns in my house and I haven't killed anybody yet. But if someone busts into my house, they're dead. We now move on to singles. The first single reviewed this week is Pandemonium by Killing Joke on Big Life Records. Christ knows how they've done it, but Killing Joke have gone from out of touch 80s has-beens to something akin to an Eskimo's toilet seat in the cool stakes for the 90s. This is the third single from their forthcoming LP and replete with a nifty Middle Eastern feel, its haunted strains are delivered on a riff bigger than Bet Lynch's hairdo. Corkin stuff. Oh, excuse me, I forgot to say, this week's new singles are reviewed by Mike Peake. Sorry, Mike Peake. Next single is Change by Blind Melon on Capital. The soundtrack to a quick knee trembler in the bushes. Change is a beautiful piece of folk pop, yet currently up there with chocolate cake on the dangerous list. If Blind Melon were a car, they'd be a rusty Capri with a free love sticker in the window. If Blind Melon were a metal band. Get It Together, Sabotage by the Beastie Boys on Capital. Retro in a way that the Black Crows never thought of. Superfly pimp action is the latest theme for the Beasties and they pull it off here with a shit-eating grin and a hot babe on each arm. You'll find more metal in a Cadbury's flake but this serves up groove by the barge load. 1994 EP by Blaggers ITA on Parlophone. Agro metal with all the subtlety of a brick outhouse gag. Not quite the monster that last year's abandoned ship was but yet another diamond in Brit Rock's growing pile of gems. Tower of Strength by Skin on Parlophone. Skin are neck and neck with Salvation Army Jumble Cells in the elite, likely to yield something new stakes, but that's not to say they're devoid of any merit. And if there'd never been a White Snake, Bad Company, or even a Thunder, this would be uh, actually worth a light. Ludes and Cherry Bombs by Green Apple Quickstep on Medicine. Part Smashing Pumpkins, part Seattle also runs. Green Apple Quick Step have come up with a single that is truly reasonable, but in the big plan, these apples are little more than bruised windfalls. Open the Gates by Dark Funeral on Hellspawn. Swedish black metal band Dark Funeral offer a nice line in face makeup, ferocious growls on one of those really difficult to read logos. Musically, they're as intense as a deep stare into the devil's own eyes. And the single of the week this week is Andreas by L7 on Slash London. I've never met L7, but it's easy to imagine the whiff emanating from their general vicinity. This fucker oozes the stink of LA's four dirtiest rock hags. And as a result, it's a stupendously memorable piece of grotty, minimalist, zoned out punk. Sadly, this is perhaps the one highlight of L7's new album, if only it was available on brown vinyl. We now come to this week's cover stars, Whitesnake, or more accurately, David Coverdale. Mr. Snake's Wild Ride. The Whitesnake roller coaster has taken David Coverdale through some amazing highs and lows, and now one of the biggest hard rock acts of the 80s is back. Can Coverdale take the snake right to the top again? Over a bottle of fine wine, the last great rock star reveals his battle plans to Paul Rees and tells the truth about all those damn guitarists. Jimmy Page, Steve Vai, Luke Morley, Richie Blackmore, and John Sykes. A tall gentleman in an expensive leather jacket and ridiculously large sunglasses strolls arrogantly into the reception of the Grand Rezo Hotel in Odense, Denmark. His impossibly fruity baritone announces that no, the flight from Finland has been anything but splendid, while various minions swarm around his feet collecting suitcases and laughing on command. David Coverdale has arrived. His Snakes guitarist Adrian Vandenberg and Warren Demartini, bassist Rudy Sarzo, drummer Denny Carmassi and guitar uh, keyboardist Paul Merkovich are mere steps behind, but no one really notices them. Coverdale swallows up the whole room. During the decade of the emotionally crippled, tortured artist, the return of a rock star whose primary concern is launching the thermonuclear weapon that lurks within his trousers is more than welcome. Make no mistake, 
David Coverdale is a rock star in great big glittery capital letters. It's because I'm verbal, he will explain later in a voice that sounds like it's been soaked in sherry. My mother always insisted, working class or not, that I have a good education. An hour after his entrance, we are summoned to David Coverdale's room, the grand suite naturally for a convivial chat and a glass of chilled white wine. Elegantly dragging on a cigarette, silk shirt open to the waist, David and not even his closest associates make the mistake of calling him Dave is once again leading Rock's most obvious double entendre, White Snake into battle. It's an amazing turnaround for Coverdale who only last year launched an ill-fated supergroup with Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page. It was not the flop that people suggested, says David of the one-off Coverdale Page album, and by no means was it the success that was expected either. Jimmy and I got on extremely well and I think the album's a cracker. God knows we didn't expect it to go on that long, but I wish him every success with Robert. Robert is of course Robert Plum, the ex-Led Zeppelin singer with whom Coverdale has feuded via the press for many years. Plum and Page are now working together again. Coverdale was less sure of his future once he and Page went their separate ways after playing just seven gigs in Japan. By the time we'd done those shows, I was ready to go, David confesses. I went back home to Tahoe and it wore off after two weeks. So I called up my manager and told him that I had two choices. Either I did something or I sat and watched the world torture itself on CNN. Coverdale did something. He resurrected Whitesnake. Rumour has it that his first move was to try poaching Thunder's Luke Morley. I like Thunder. That's well documented. But I've never ever asked Luke to compromise Thunder, Coverdale insists. What I did say was that it would be nice to work together one day, that was it. I said the same thing to Rudy Sarzo four years before I actually worked with him. Rudy Sarzo did of course eventually succumb to Coverdale's charms and reading between the lines a betting man would probably wouldn't lay odds against old Cov snaring Morley at some point. Go on Coverdale urges, get onto some other stuff. How about John Sykes, Coverdale's sidekick for the breakthrough 1987 album, creator of that colossal riff on Still of the Night. Was Sykes really offered an obscene amount of money to rejoin the snake? I think it was probably the other way round. Geffen wanted a million dollars off him. Coverdale huffs. John and I worked together for a short space of time. We changed the course of rock in a matter of weeks of writing in the south of France and he was still a pain in the fucking butt. He couldn't stand the fact that people were more aware of me than of him. He did everything he could to badmouth me. I thought him and Plant should have formed a band together called the Antichrists. I just washed my hands of him. And when I close a book, that book is closed. Whatever he does, best of luck, but he will certainly not be back in Whitesnake at any time. Incredibly, the third guitarist linked with the new Whitesnake in the gossip pages was none other than Coverdale's old deep purple bandmate Richie Blackmore. It'd have to be called Richie Blackmore's Whitesnake, David Bellows. Well, we know what the chances are of that. In the end, Coverdale turned to the stalwart Adrian Vandenberg when it came to reviving the snake. I love singing and I love working with a crowd, David Purse. So I called up Adrian, who was getting ready to do some work with Manic Eden, the band Vandenberg had formed with Sarzo, ex-Whitesnake drummer Tommy Aldridge, and former Little Caesar frontman Ron Young. I said, come and kick me up the arse. He got me motivated and we wrote some great songs. So Vandenberg was back in favour, having been dispatched with a flea in his ear two years ago. The crime? He presented Coverdale with a selection of songs that the latter described as more suited to Chicago or Poison. Ever the cunning old fox, Coverdale counters. We've discussed that and I've said to Adrian that he pushed me the wrong way. We've actually taken one of those songs and turned it into a killer blues number called Too Many Tears, which, God willing, we'll record. Before, the way my mindset was at, it would have come out like an old stack soul tube. Nothing wrong with that, mind you, but it wasn't the snakes. Anyway, while Adrian was staying with me earlier this year, I got invited to do this gig in St. Petersburg. He continues, I didn't want to do this one show in Russia and come back to the mountain again. So I started discussing the possibility of getting some session guys in and putting a tour together. It was Vandenberg who pushed the whole enterprise a step further. Coverdale sets the scene in typically flamboyant fashion. We went to the library, stocked up on cognac and he said, at this time in our lives and careers, why would we want to work with strangers? Session guys would play the stuff, but it'd be cold. Adrian told me he could put Manic Eden on hold. We immediately gave Sarzo a call and he came straight out of the box. Getting Carmassi was no problem. Rudy recommended Warren and a former crew associate suggested Paul Merkovich. With Whitesnake Reborn, a series of shows were confirmed across Europe. Now there's the greatest hits album drawn solely from the last three Snakes LPs. It's the stuff that broke America. Still of the night, is this love, here I go again, slide it in. Coverdale insists that there was to have been a volume one featuring early White Snake classics like Love Hunter and Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City, but no one could find the original master tapes. 
Whatever, Greatest Hits is a stark reminder of just how far Coverdale shifted from his blues roots to court MTV. These days, he seems pained to even mention the last Snake album, Slip of the Tongue, on which journeyman guitarist Steve Vai overplayed horribly. I had no idea that I compromised the original concept of White Snake until much later, David groaned. It was only going into the Coverdale page project, sound, the soul and the passion. I hate to say it, but White Snake degenerated. I mean, I see and hear some of the tapes and videos from that 90 tour and I'm surprised people knew what fucking song I was singing with everybody overplaying. Adrian was almost as guilty because he was not rising to that competitive level. I'm not taking anything away from Steve Vai's talent, but I made an enormous musical mistake. He wasn't the devil's guitar slinger from the end of Crossroads that I'd fallen in love with. No more widdly widdlies for me, please. You get caught up on a roller coaster, Mr. Snake's wild ride, and you can't get off. You know, it must be right to tease your hair and wear these ridiculously expensive stage clothes, because we're selling 300,000 records before noon every day. And White Snake 94? It's much rawer, he bristles. Until the late 80s, one stake always let the music do the talking, and the interplay between the band and the crowd was the essence. Which doesn't mean that Coverdale has gone grunge and dusted down the lumberjack shirts he once wore on camping expeditions with Cozy Pal. There was no fucking way I was growing a goatee, he snorts. I just got sick of hearing all the misery. All this running the hot bath and getting the Wilkinson sword edge out. I've stripped away the rhinestone cowboy shit, but I don't believe the heart and passion and rock and roll is out of the window. I want to stir up some shit. This is my current cliche. I want to provide an alternative to alternative music. So, can White Snake recapture former glories? It's a question that for once their leader addresses with more caution than bravado. At this moment, that one day at a time thing rings true, he considers. I'd love to turn around and say that it's all going to be a bed of roses, but I don't think it will be. There's going to be a lot of times where, with all the passion that I have, I'll be biting a bullet. I can't continue to bankroll something that would effectively be a hobby. I would probably end up being in a local band in Lake Tahoe under the name of the Dog's Bollocks or something. Just so I had the pleasure of still singing. He stops, reaching for something a little more profound. Are we relevant? I don't give a fuck. And if this is going to be the last Tarado, I want to make it out with a bang. It would be very sad, but I've always said that I don't want to be a forced um, to retire from working. I'd rather do it under my own terms. It's costing me a lot of dough to do this, but I'm having a blast already. And that's the important parameter now, to have fun, he concludes. And whilst having all this fun, I may go, you know, what? There is an audience left out there. I'll take it from there. A day later, Whitesnake are in the process of giving 40,000 Danes a rollicking goodnight out. They're set. With the exception of Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City and Coverdale Pages Don't Leave Me This Way, it's pretty much the greatest hits album minus the whittling and the more extreme choices of wardrobe. David Coverdale stands centre stage, pouting and preening like Eddie Vedder's worst nightmare. The voice is mighty and monstrous as ever. He looks like a man who's a long way from writing the final chapter of his own story. Here's a song for anyone who's feeling especially romantic, he croons as the band slip into Is This Love. Take your partners by the gland. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy you couldn't get off the turntable. We now come to records, and apparently it's L7 week here at Kerrang Back Issues. They had a piece at the start of the magazine, they got single of the week, and the first album reviewed this week is L7, Hungry for Stink. This album gets reviewed by Chris Watts, and this gets 3Ks out of 5. They ran rings around Gary Crowley on the beat. They flattened him. It's something you just could never have imagined rock goddesses even considering. But L7 have a finely tuned bozo antenna. It's a saving grace as well as a huge pain in the ass because basically L7 should be so much better than Hungry for Stink. L7 should be as cool as Slade by now. They should be spitting out enormous cartoon anthems with a twinkle in their eyes like they get the joke and it's no big deal. And urging us all to stomp down the discos, L7 should sound fun. They should be the flip side to Rage Against the Machine and Blind Melon. Instead, L7 have made an average Mud Honey record. L7 tried too hard to appear way dumber than Babes in Toyland and more fun than Grunge. As the first single and opening track, Andreas is apparently an apology to a mutual friend wrapped up in a cod gonzoid chorus that could almost certainly be the B-52s. Which is fine if you're going for a song on the Flintstone soundtrack, but L7 should not be allowed to sound like Vanessa Paradis with a sore throat front in the cramps. There are several moments to see L7 moving confidently away from such giant booted pop metal bubbles as Pretend We're Dead, Can I Run is a smashed up honey of a groove. Riding with a movie star complete with bizarre Hawaiian percussion sounds like the Bengals flaunting a degree of excellence from the University of Grunge. 
It's probably stuck here again, which saves Hungry for Stink because it sounds like Caius. It actually sounds like a band who sat down and thought about a tune before stripping it down to basics and rebuilding it around Donita Sparks' ratchet throat. But overall, the album is weighted by typically blunt and messy firecrackers like Baggage, Freak Magnet and Shirley. Little songs that blaze fiercely for three minutes before fizzling out in a shower of hooligan feedback. L7 need not worry about Hungry for Stink, it will sell by the bucket load, it will be as enormous as Old Faith No More's Angel Dust, but for such a colourful gang of hags and harpies, it's a relative disappointment. As a celebration of the ordinary, L7 are a triumph, but rock and roll should never be ordinary. The next album reviewed this week is Punk in Drublick by NoFX. This album is reviewed by Morat, and this gets 4Ks. Oh come on, surely you must know the score by now. No Effects are a US West Coast band of degenerates who could, as they have proved beyond doubt, play in any style you care to mention. But instead, and quite rightly, they choose to keep pumping out that punk racket. As such, there is not an awful lot to say about this, their fifth album, that hasn't been said about them before. It's like trying to describe a Ramones album. You know exactly what to expect, it's the same as the last album, just with different songs. Punk in Drublet continues to display a fine sense of humour along with all the usual frantic harmonies, cool stop-start bits and occasional straying into other musical territory. This time, there's a little reggae and a very convincing oi number. The band take the piss out of themselves and everyone else, sing about fleas in her fleas, bad footwear in Jeff wears Birkenstocks and even get momentarily serious in Don't Call Me White, all at 200 miles per hour. No fuss, no bullshit, no tread on their tyres, no effects. The next album reviewed is Spreading the Hardcore Reality by Sick of It All. This album gets 3Ks and is reviewed by Morat. There are no details to say what year this material was originally released, but my guess would be that it all hails from around 1987 since it's subtitled The Revelation Tapes on the CD sleeve. So that makes it pretty early on in this New York hardcore act's career. Now of course Sick of It All are one of the most important acts in the current boiling hardcore pop, Back then, if my humiliatingly decrepit memory serves me correctly, sick of it all had just quit being resting pieces and were fast and furious almost to the point of stupidity, yet still managed to chuck in the occasional chorus you could shout along to. There are 12 tracks here, and the whole thing clocks in at 11 minutes 47 seconds, which indicates 7 to a blind man that something rapid is going on. Sadly for the most part, speed got in the way of a good tune in those days, and sick of it all fell into this trap of sounding like any other hardcore band. Great at the time if you lived in New York, which you almost certainly didn't, so your record collection would be lit with all the bands who sounded exactly like that from the UK. We had our own breakneck punk and hardcore bands in 87 too, so you wouldn't need to buy this unless you're a total sick of it all fanatic and think they'll play one of these tracks live next time they hit town. Or if you need to console yourself after the cancellation of the UK tour they were supposed to be doing right now. In either case, you will notice how much better sick of it all are in 1994. Next album reviewed is Prone Mortal Form by Only Living Witness. Reviewed by Morat again, three out of four reviews this week, and this gets four Ks. Sadly, there is every chance you miss this splendid four-piece when they slip through the UK supporting, or rather blowing away, the Chromags on tour last year. Thankfully, it seems that Century Media know when they're onto a bloody good thing and so have chosen to re-release the album that was supposed to be being plugged on that tour and with some four extra tracks into the bargain. All you have to do now is buy the bugger, which I strongly advise you do if you like Soundgarden, The Misfits, Count Raven, Alice in Chains. There are more healthy influences here than you'd find in a keep fit class, along of course with oodles of their own thumping input. Finally in Kerrang this week, we come to a piece called Rock and Roll Suicide. Seattle's heroin nightmare continues. First Andy Wood of the seminal Mother Love Bone overdosed and died. Then Kurt Cobain ended his desperate addiction by committing suicide. Now Kristen Pfaff of Hull has been found dead with a needle in her arm. When would the misery end? And why is heroin still glamorised? A Kerrang! investigation by Paul Elliott and Pete Makowski. I wanted to smoke dope, take dope, lick dope, suck dope and fuck dope. So said hard-living cosmic blues whaler Janis Joplin shortly before her death from an accidental heroin overdose in 1971. Following the heroin-related deaths of Kurt Cobain and whole bassist Kristen Pfaff, much is being made of modern Seattle's drug hell, but it's nothing new. Drugs have always been and always will be an insidious part of the music industry. From the reefer-smoking, coke-snorting, jazz devils of the 30s to the crack-pipe-licking, speedball-shooting, young grunge mavericks of the 90s, it's all the same old shit. 
And it's the same old shit that they're sticking in their systems. For all the same old reasons. Trouble is that recently, people seem to be dropping like skittles and they're much younger. Why? Perhaps junkie survivor Pete Mikowski's words elsewhere in this feature go some way to explaining the deaths. Mikowski became a heroin addict while working for the now-defunct music paper Sounds, which itself spawned Karain in 1981. Mikowski interviewed and socialised with such celebrated druggies as Aerosmith's toxic twin Steven Tyler and Joe Perry and Finn Lizzy leader Phil Liner. Mikowski recalls, In the 60s, musicians were more upfront about using drugs. Hash, LSDs, uppers, downers, inners and outers. It was part and parcel of the psychedelic culture and it seemed like harmless fun. In the 70s, the excessive use of cocaine seemed to be in line with the decadence and debauchery of the rock stars who indulged themselves and the amphetamine crazed punks were a backlash from the youth to these excesses. The drugs in vogue kind of run parallel with the quality and style of music of the time, up until now that is. Then again, maybe the current kamikaze abuse of class A substances among today's rock elite does reflect the futile mood of the music and the people are playing it. Drugs and rock and roll have always shared a kind of sleazy glamour. So much great rock music is rich in drug imagery. Guns N' Roses is Mr. Brownstone, the Rolling Stones' Sister Morphine, the New York Dolls' Pills, Finn Lizzy's Opium Trail, Black Sabbath's Sweet Leaf, Hanoi Rock's Self-Destruction Blues, Motorhead's White Line Fever, Johnny Thunder's Chinese Rocks. The Black Crows played before a cannabis leaf backdrop on their High as the Moon tour. Skid Row singer Sebastian Bach appeared on the cover of the Pot Smokers Bible High Times and also jammed with members of Pantera at a pro-pop benefit gig. But clearly, soft drugs ain't the problem. The problem is heroin. When the Seattle scene exploded in the late 80s, there was talk of revolution, of new values. Sure, the music was fresh, but the attitudes? Consider Pearl Jam and Nirvana the most influential and successful of Seattle's new rock order. The former were born in the wake of a heroin tragedy, the latter were destroyed by the same. Mother Lovebone singer Andrew Wood was Seattle's most significant drug casualty since Jimi Hendrix. Wood's death by a heroin overdose ended Mother Lovebone, whose core surviving members Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament went on to form Pearl Jam. The story of Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, we all know. When Holes Kristen Pfaff was found dead in her bath with a syringe sticking out of her arm, she became yet another drug death statistic in a city with the worst smack problem in America. Heroin related deaths in Seattle were up by 60% last year. Pfaff also joined a list of rock and roll drug casualties stretching back over 20 years. Hendrix, Joplin, Lionel, Sid, Sex Pistols, Sid Vicious, The Ruts, Malcolm Owen, Andrew Wood, The Doors, Jim Morrison, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Hillel Slovak. And there have been countless lucky escapes. Luckiest of all is Motley Crue bassist Nikki Six, who once lay clinically dead for two minutes after overdosing on smack. He even got a tune out of it. Kickstart my heart. American punk anti-hero Jerry A is nothing like Nikki Six, but he's just as lucky to be alive. 26 stone Jerry led out of control punk monsters poison idea for over a decade, during which time he ingested so much booze and so many hard drugs that he's lost count of the times he's wound up on hospital critical lists. In the end, drugs didn't kill Jerry A, they just destroyed his band. Of all the great rock and roll survivors, none is more celebrated than Rolling Stone's uh, Keith Richards. Keith was the ultimate wasted rock icon. They even said he had blood uh, changed on a regular basis, such was the level of toxins in his body. Recently deceased comic genius Bill Hicks once joked, only two things will survive a nuclear war, Keith Richards and Bugs. Phil Lineup was another rock and roller who thought nothing could kill him. Pete Mikowski reflects, I remember being backstage with Phil Lynott during Finn Lizzy's Thunder and Lightning tour. He proudly displayed his arms, revealing the heavy bruising of track marks where he'd been injecting speed. There seemed to be a grin spread across his bloodshot, bloated and sweating visage like a kid showing off his new tattoo. And yep, I regret admitting it today, but I was impressed. Lynott died at a broken man in 1986. Mikowski concludes, the old school of musicians were genuine buccaneers on a voyage of discovery. Being young, rich, talented and totally hedonistic was a real act of two fingers up in the face of an uptight establishment. But today, the music business is the establishment. And no matter how much you pout and stamp your feet, fighting for your artistic rights, once you sign that dotted line you're a part of the business machinery. With deadlines to meet and planes to catch. You get swallowed up whole. It's hard being a rebel without a cause in corporate rockdom. Chart Attack and the number one single this week is Shut Up and Dance by Aerosmith. 
Number one in the indie metal album charts is Stacked Up by Sensor, and number one in the album charts is The Last Temptation by Alice Cooper. There are no reader charts this week. And that concludes this week's um, episode of Kerrang! Back Issues. I hope you have all enjoyed it. I hope you're all doing well out there. Next week in Kerrang! on sale July 13th, five free monster stickers, plus everything you need to know about Little Angels, White Snake, Corrosion of Conformity, Skid Row, Sepultura, and more. We will be back next week at the same time, same day, as usual. Um, I hope, I've already said I hope you're all doing well. I like to I like to say I hope you're doing well because I hope you are all doing well. Anyway, bye for now. See you next week. <laughs> Cheers.